I'm not seduced by stability because I don't think there is any. Listen, if we didn't all learn that from COVID, then what more lesson do you need? Like things can change overnight. So, you know, you might as well lean into it. Hello, and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, which is brought to you by the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we'll be speaking with choreographer, photographer, and filmmaker Trey McIntyre. Described by the New York Times as one of America's most peculiarly original dance poets, Trey McIntyre has made a habit of defying expectations throughout his career. A graduate of UNCSA School of Dance, he went on to the Houston Ballet Academy where, upon finishing his training, he was given the position of choreographic apprentice at the ballet, a post created specifically for him. Then, as his freelance career started to take off, he did something completely unexpected. He could have tethered himself to a large coastal American metropolis or a European capital, but instead he decided to settle down in Boise, Idaho, where he created Trey McIntyre Project, a vibrant dance company that quickly garnered the world's attention, spending up to 22 weeks a year in national and international tours. Then, 10 years later after its founding in 2014, at the height of the company's success, Trey decided to fold the company and return to freelancing. He continues to be an in-demand choreographer around the world. Just before the pandemic, he created works for Queensland Ballet, San Francisco Ballet, and the Washington Ballet. But lately, he's also been diving into a new artistic passion. He has a photographic practice, creating kinetic and often erotic tableaus of a human body. He supports this endeavor through a network of fans via a Patreon account. And in 2018, he also directed Gravity Hero, a documentary film about his journey with Trey McIntyre Project. Trey spoke to me from his home in Brooklyn. I started by asking him if he'd mind taking us back to 2014 when he made that decision to shut down his successful dance company. In so many ways, he was holding the brass ring, what so many artists in the performing arts world might desire. He was both a successful artist and an admired leader. So what made him want to change course so suddenly when all signs were saying he should continue? Well, you know, I'm not sick of talking about it because I think it's such a big subject. And the more that we talk about it, the more I certainly discover and the greater depth um, it provides and also informs me as I continue to move forward. But, you know, I think Trey McIntyre Project in particular was lauded for its sense of innovation and really being, you know, what, you know, it's an overused word, but a disruptor in, in the dance world and doing things in a different way. And I think, you know, we were really successful at that. Um, we were successful in solving a lot of the problems around creating context for a dance company and the why of, of you know, why does, it, why does a dance company exist in a particular community? I think we addressed those things head on and came up with great solutions. But, but I think when a large part of your expectation is that innovation, you've got to keep doing it. And there was never really a space to kind of sit and r- truly focus on the art. That part of it was, was nonstop. 
there, even as a successful dance company, we did great. You're still constantly uh, in a position of begging and asking. We need to exist, be- and we need to ask people to help us do that. That's relentless. There's, you know, there's, there's not a day, and I, and I still to this day outrun this feeling of I must always be working. You know, that was ten years where it was wake up, work till you fall asleep. I took one vacation in that whole entire period and just kind of spent it staring at the wall. Like I didn't know how to do anything differently. And so, you know, to think about that then creatively, how do you step into a studio and unencumber yourself of all of that? I I think it would take a superhuman person. And there's plenty of people who are capable of that. I'm not one of them. For me, the creative headspace to actually be in that place where I'm being my best artist is such a for lack of a better word, immature place to be, you know, it's, it's got to be boundless. You've got to, you know, you can't think about logistics or, or anything like, or even just being a human in certain, in certain ways, you know, creativity is really about breaking through to the other side. Um, whereas being a leader is very concrete and it's very adult and it must be. A lot of companies now, a lot of theater companies, at least, and probably some dance companies are, are using a co-leadership model. Do you think that would have been helpful to have a co-leader? Hmm. I, I, that's, well, that's not in your character. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I know it, w- it would absolutely be, you know, I don't know that I've seen it play out in that way in a dance company. I know, it, you know, it was just announced that Julie Kent is going to be doing that with Stanton Welch at Houston Ballet. And uh, I'll be uh, watching with a lot of curiosity to see how that happens. If my role could have been relegated, you know, to really like what is a full-time job, which is steering the artistic vision of a company, maybe. But I still, you know, I will say you're still in a leadership position and the interpersonal of every day. And as much as I, you know, I really tried, I did my best to craft a different culture than this. When you're in a leadership role, you become symbolically a father, no matter what, like people just can't help it. They just, those things get foisted on you. Those expectations get foisted on you. And those were the things that really were counter to how I wanted to work artistically. And you know, in the end, it just caused too much internal conflict for me. Like I just, I, and I, to be quite honest, I had a great sense of that in the beginning. You know, when we were just a summer pickup company, it really felt off. You know, creatively, I loved it. I was working with some of my favorite artists on the planet, but just something was so upsetting. And, um, you know, if, if I'm being totally naked in this conversation, I think it was ego more than anything that propelled it forward. It's like, Oh, this thing is successful. People like me for this. So I'm going to, I'm going to follow it. And it didn't really come from a sense of, ah, this is what I'm on this planet to be doing. So was that sense of this summer pickup is such a success? Obviously, what I should do is do this year round. This is what what is expected of me. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. And that's the messages coming in every direction. And that you know that included just practical things like you know we we had some early success with presenters um, of summer festivals, you know. But there's only so many, and we can't, we can't have a company every year going back to the same the same places. So it was just you know there were presenters who said if you became a full time company, we'd love to present you. And that seemed like an opportunity that would be dumb to pass up. Um, so that's kind of what propelled it in the beginning. So what's propelling you now? What feeds your creative juices? Well, for example, um, besides being a choreographer, I'm also a photographer and have invested quite a few years now in that. And it's a very, working as a photographer is a very different process from working in the studio. It cultivates a very different uh, interpersonal 
way of working with artists that really stretches me and helps helps me grow. And it's maybe like photo shoots are, are much more diverse than each time I walk into a studio. You know, in the studio, there's a certain there's a certain um, there's a certain ethos and a certain kind of just the way things play out that's recognizable from company to company. Uh, photo shoots not that way. It's a whole new world every time. You know, because I, I tend I tend to really just work with one person at a time. And so, you know, that it's whatever that person brings into the room. And so, you know, that stretches me enormously. You know, I'm incredibly curious. I just um, evolved my website to be one that's less about presenting my work and more about curating what's happening out there in the world digitally. Because I, I love that. Like if I, you know, if I find an artist where I think, oh, this is so great. I want to tell as many people as possible. You know, the relationships and the friendships that I have are generally with people who have that same level of curiosity. So we're talking about, you know, either like the, the finer points of what's going on in the world, not so much in the nuts and bolts of it, but, you know, maybe psychologically what's happening in the world or, you know, breaking open different artists that we're, we're seeing and, and seeing, you know, how that fits in with the timeline of what's happening um, on the planet. That's pretty much how I spend all of my time. And I would I would add, add to that, you know, most recently that's evolved into teaching. Um, it was something I didn't think I was that interested in, but I've had some opportunities recently, and it's it's mind blowingly fulfilling. And I think especially in this time, and especially working with young people, you know, at, at this moment in history, it's just such a change in what they bring into the room, and there's so much to be learned from it. And there's something really, uh, there's a huge gift that, you know, if I can be a, in a place as a teacher of, of receptivity and learning from the person I'm with what they really need versus what I think I have to have to give, um, there's a tremendous amount of growth I'm finding that's coming from that. What are you learning from your students in 2022 that is different from what you were being taught when you were studying? What And what do you feel you need to teach them that is different than what you might have been taught mm. as a student? Well, you know, I just saw a quote on Instagram yesterday. I, I'm sorry, I don't know who to attribute it to, but it was about how, you know, from day one in dance training, you know, it's a culture of fear. It's authority. And it's about you know, you're motivated by, you know, absolute authority in the room. And as generations progress, that becomes less and less acceptable. And so I think that asks the teacher then to say, like, well, then how do you stand in your authority if it's not about scaring this person or, you know, having some dire consequences over them? And, you know, it's not a big shift to find out that, coming from a place of mutual respect, but surety in what you're communicating, meaning as a dance maker and someone who's been in the industry for, let's see, 32 years now, I do know what I'm talking about. And I'm, I'm not sharing it from a place of I'm better than you. I'm sharing it from a place of I actually authentically care about you and want you to have this information. So how do you need to hear it? And how can we both get there? And, and not being in a stuck place, even if it's like you're not listening to me, like, well, okay, Let's bring that back on me. Why are they not listening to me? What am I? What am I not conveying? What's missing? And what I'm saying? Um, and what this person needs? And that's so exciting. Like I just love that in the room because there isn't like there is an end point for that. Like there is an answer to that question. I think to approach it with like as much humility as one can muster, and you know, getting over these 32 years and what does that? What does that make me? Who cares? You know, all it is is the information I have available and how like lovely when you find that way to impart it in a way that sticks, you know, and that it feeds that person. Have you found that your teaching experience has influenced the way you choreograph? For sure. Maybe not in the way I might shape 
uh, choreography, but in the way I communi- communicate. You know, at the professional level, I think I think one of the hurdles you know, that one has to kind of overcome is the wrong word, but shape in their career is that you have to. It's a lot of it's a lot of creative egos in the room. I don't mean ego like in the you know negative puffed up, but like it's a you know it's a colorful, uh, fully developed person who has their own needs and wants, and they're on a professional track. And it's like the stakes get much higher. But it's really helped me kind of like see that as not the hurdle that I maybe used to see it. That it's really just kind of the same thing, like. There's a, certainly a temperature to the entire room, you know, how the company feels as a group and like knowing that and getting with that first, but also paying attention in every interaction. Who's this person I'm talking to specifically? Again, at the same time, you know, the authority comes from, uh, I showed up prepared for knowing the dance that I want to make. You know, I like, I am the authority on this and I want to give this to you. And I want you to be the best possible person to fulfill this role. But, you know, again, just not doing it from a place of trying to scare everyone. I just think, you know, that's the generation I was brought up in for sure. It didn't make me the best artist I could be. I'll tell you that much. I responded to, the, you know, the very few teachers I had in my time who really cared about, you know, me getting to being the best dancer that I could be. I love that you brought up fear because I wanted to talk to you about fear. You've spoken about how part of your childhood was marked by violence and by fear. In my mind, I would think that a person like that who is marked by fear would really seek out security and stability. Mm. But you, like you said at the top of the inf- at the interview, love kind of to pull the rug out from yourself. Can you talk about how your relationship to fear has changed over the years? Yeah, I you know, I think really from the beginning that had been my reaction because, you know, I think I I felt surrounded by a lot of adults who didn't act like adults. And so, you know, I think the choice is to recoil and be in a place of of real danger or to become an adult. And so, you know, I do think I have this instinct to like get out of there as fast as you can. You know, first chance you get, get out when things don't feel right. You know, as an adaptive way of, you know, dealing with it, great. But like, that's something that's had to evolve over time. Um, I don't think I'm ever going to get... The stay, the, you mean the staying in the room rather than running away? Yeah. And, you know, I don't think I'm ever going to lose that impulse. I mean, I'm so inspired by newness. I think that's quite natural. And I'm delighted by it. And I, I'm not seduced by stability because I don't think there is any. Listen, if we didn't all learn that from COVID, then what more lesson do you need? Like things can change overnight. So, you know, you might as well lean into it. And it's, and to, you know, to do that with an open heart and just to like, you know, fall into it and accept change has, has brought me nothing but gifts in my life. It just doesn't feel that scary. I suppose maybe I'm, you know, you know, dumb for feeling that way, but I don't know. Life is short. And I think, you know, having new experiences and feeling inspired over what to me feels like a very dead sameness of security. It's just a no brainer. In some interview, maybe it was even in the documentary you made, you uh, you posed a question when you folded Trey McIntyre Projects, which was, why have a dance company in America at this point? Are companies at all necessary to keeping ballet and dance thriving in the 21st century? And what what do they need to look like? What do they need to be? Hmm. I, you know, this is only going to be conjecture. I don't, I think I will probably be proven wrong with this. But in my opinion, let me put it this way. For me as an audience member, if I didn't have a connection to this community, 
the structure and the way this work is presented needs to change drastically. I met with some dancers the other day who, who asked me, like, we really want to be inspired by work. We want to do what's groundbreaking. Like, what company should I go to? And I sat there with them and really couldn't think of one. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot of amazing companies, wonderful choreographers who do great things. But like, in terms of being something vital, that's moving the form forward, that's evolving with contemporary society and the way not just dance fans are, but the way people are, I don't know which direction I would point in for that. And so I personally, if, if I'm the audience, there's not longevity for dance companies remaining as they are. And, and I think culturally, they tend to be set up to self-perpetuate, to keep doing what they've been doing and cultivating the audience that looks for a thing. I, I don't see that as a recipe for long-term success, but you know, this might be long-term as in hundreds of years, but we're, we are just so used to interfacing with screens. And I do think that there is something so special about the live performance. I think if, if we're not using that to really blow people's minds and show like what's so incredibly special, then I just, I, I don't see it. Like I, I've been going to see a lot of shows. I just saw one the other day, a Broadway show that like used video projection as mainly as the set piece. And in my opinion, Ooh, that, that can be, that can often be so lazy. Yes. That's what it, it felt like. I, oh. okay. I'm watching a bad TV screen. Like, you know, yeah. cause it's going to be dim compared to the performers. It just felt like, so, well, we have this accessible to us and maybe it's cheaper. Or I don't know what, but it really undermined what was exciting about the about the live performance. So, so I don't know. I feel like I'm kind of rambling with this question because um, I don't but really know the answer. If somebody were holding your feet to the fire <laughs> and we're forcing you, uh, Trey, tomorrow you have to lead a new dance company. <laughs> what would be the first two new things you would implement to change the way the company related to its audience and its community? Hmm. Well. It's a matter of process, right? It's not a conclusion because like for TMP, people kept asking us, you know, what's the formula? And like the formula is to know what your audience is after, even if they don't know yet. Like what works in Boise, Idaho, what that community is, is not the same as Albuquerque, you know? And so like for me, first thing is to actually really listen and understand. Like, I don't know, like choreography, a choreographer is given a lot of power. You know, it's the artistic vision of one person. And in certain ways, that's amazing because it's not diluted. You know, what you see on stage becomes a clear vision that came from one person. But at the same time, you're not God. And so like the adherence to one person's artistic vision in conflict with the community around them, I don't really see what's that reason reason for existence. So that's the first one. It's like a, a deep dive in that way. But for me, it would also be a deep dive internally. Like, okay, it's like, you know, a lot of big talk, Mr. McIntyre. Like, what is the answer for you? And, I, and that would include like stripping it down to the bones. Like not starting with any assumptions about a dance. And who, who would be involved in those discussions? Well, I would start certainly with the people that whose opinions I really respect and know that they come from a place not of you know, what just the known, you know, people who I know, like, who are really curious and like paying attention to what's happening in the world, start from there. It's just not out there yet. Like the idea that moves this forward, it's not out there yet. We're still in a little bit of, um, uh, and getting back to fear, you know, it's a poverty mentality, like, oh, we have to survive, we have to survive, we have to survive. 
which is a reality. Like that's absolutely true about dance companies, but in some ways it's self-fulfilling in that way because you're only focused on survival and not like on the thing that makes what you do so special and makes you not have to be in survival mode. So, so that's what I would do. So what did you end up telling those dancers you were talking with? Uh, I, I said, do it yourself. I said, if you, if you really want to, you know, if you want to be in that place where you're, you're that inspired, you're going to figure out what that is. And they're like, mm, this, that, this, that, you know, they suddenly go into you know, poverty mode. But it's like, okay, well, which is it? Do you want to be an accountant or do you want to be inspired in your work? And that's the risky part. Which leads me to my next question. What skills or interests, especially now that you're teaching, do you think up and coming dancers need to cultivate in addition to their dance talents? Mm. Two things I would say. Uh, first is curiosity about the world because all those other things are what informs a, a great artist. You know, not just having this this myopic path that certainly takes up a lot of your time, but like to really be curious about the world and to learn and to know that all those things make you a richer dancer. And the other have to do with the interpersonal. There's not a lot of training that addresses the transition from thinking like a student and thinking like a professional. And so I would I would encourage um, dancers as they move into the professional realm to really learn about. Well, really about themselves and, you know, what am I really trying to get out of this? What am, like, what's my conflict with this rehearsal director or this artistic director? Learning what's really going on because, because otherwise I think you can really kill a lot of time in conflict in ways that you don't need to be. You just need to learn how to work with people. You mean like a psychotherapeutic process? For some, yeah. Yeah. Or it could just be, you know, psychotherapeutic or it could just be like, um, uh, life coach kind of thing, or it's interesting because you talked about you talked to, you talked about it as a transition from being a student to a professional. So I wonder even if if it, in the final years of education it becomes part of the learning process. If there's actual, if it's built into a curriculum, how great would that be? I went back to UNCSA um, when Susan Jaffe was the dean to do what's it called intensive arts, and that's the workshop I did, which was career transition. So I worked with seniors. And we spent the week and I didn't go in with any curriculum. I just, you know, sat down the first day, like, okay, what do you think a company is going to be? What do you, what are you scared about? And like finding out where those holes are, explaining it from my experience, but then also like developing exercises to work on it. Here, my favorite one was, you know, it, it could be real practical. Like this one young woman said, I'm so scared about auditioning because I'm slow picking up choreography. And I just, I'm going to get behind and they're never going to see me dance. Okay, great enough. So, and that was an easy uh, exercise. I said, okay, well, I'm an artistic director. Um, I could easily be someone you're auditioning for. So it could be easy to imagine me in that position. So let's have an audition. You know, I'm going to teach choreography. I'm going to teach it fast. Like you're going to get lost. Like the next question is, well, well, what happens? Like when you start to, when you start to get behind, what happens? And and she was like, well, it's just, I get out of breath. Like I stop panic, start panicking and I'm, stuck in this moment. I said, okay, great. When that happens, when you get that feeling, just stop where you are. We're all going to protect you, dance around you, and just close your eyes, put your hands in your solar plexus and just breathe until you feel that calm. And then once you feel that calm, come out of it and continue. And she said, oh, but, but I'm going to be so far behind in the choreography. And I'm like, yes, okay, that part's not the point. Like, yes, you'll be behind, but like you're going to pick up right where we left off and just like that practice of training, like, you know, not getting, taking it a little Instead bit. Instead of practicing to be increasingly frantic and terrified. That's right. 
Yeah. Yeah. And just, you know, just to have a moment of like, okay, it's not imaginary anymore. Me picturing myself breaking out. I actually had the experience once and learned a way to, to deal with it. So that was, I mean, I, that was like such a joy to work with that week. It was really like a lovely emotional. And I really feel like we, I feel like we really got somewhere by the end of it. That was a fun time. What projects on your, on your plate coming up are you most excited about? The big one I'm working on right now, and this is the rest of my year, is um, I've moved into medium format photography, which means I can make ginormous prints that are hyper detail. And I'm working on a series of 10 images, and they're all um, reconceptions of male archetypes meant to free men from the traditional expectations of what it what it can mean to be a man not as a, it's not you know not as a way of emasculating or it's it's really about looking at like okay well what are those like what does it mean at least archetypically to be a man and what what, what could be a more generative way of looking at this in today's culture and i'm staging each one kind of like a tarot card so it's a human image floating in a black surround with all this very heavy symbology um, around it. And I, so I want to do these 10 gigantic uh, portraits. So I'm, I'm working on crafting those right now. I'm spending my time like studying traditional archetypes and kind of learning their origins. Finally, your bio ends with this wonderful sentence. His main focus has been adding more love into the world. He loves you and doesn't even know you. How are you planning to add love into the world today or this week? <laughs> um, well, I would go back to, and this seems like a contradiction in a certain way, but it's a thing I'm learning for myself, is to first get right with myself and to make sure as often as possible that I'm living from a place of openness and not just projecting myself all over everybody that I come into contact with. And I continue to stay delighted by people. That's another great thing about being in New York City. Like you can just sit outside and like, just the people are so wonderful. I want to embrace them. I mean, I was talking to a guy at the subway stop today who told me he had met the prime minister at this very same stop this week. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, let's go deeper with that. He told me the whole story. And I thought, that's incredible. That's just incredible. So yeah, I'm going to keep just, I'm just going to keep approaching the world with an open heart and accepting what comes my way. To read a longer version of this interview and learn more about Trey, please head to uncsa.edu slash artrestart. Word of mouth is so crucial for us to reach new listeners, so if you know someone who'd enjoy hearing from our guests, won't you please turn them on to Art Restart? We're always happy to get new subscribers. And if your podcast app includes ratings and reviews, they don't all, but some do, won't you please consider telling us how we're doing? Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Keenan Institute for the Arts, thank you for listening.